0: Well, where God has me right now to share today, this is controversial, you may or you may not disagree, that'll be fine, just go ahead, take the meat, swallow it, spit out the bones, whatever you feel like that you need to do, go ahead and do that. But What we're going to be dealing with today, I'm coming directly against a stronghold. Because it could be interpreted in multiple ways. And uh, Pastor Jeremiah totally confirmed this just a minute ago because he read the same scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, I'm a spirit man having a natural event or happenings of reality. but I am a spirit being who just happens to be in a physical flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not going to be of the flesh, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. A stronghold is a castle. It has walls to keep people from getting in. A lot of times they would put prisons in the middle of these strongholds, in the medieval ages especially, and they would be a place where they would incarcerate people to keep them in. So when these strongholds of thought come in, which that is, it talks about imaginations and everything that exalts itself above the mind of Christ right after this, it's a place where you're going to shield yourself from other people. You're not going to allow them to come in. You got your mask up, whatever it is. We've had some teaching on that. We understand these principles. But today we're going to be dealing with a stronghold of a particular scripture uh, that we're going to present the scripture in just a second that has been used to abuse the body of Christ, to abuse Jews at a great level by tyrants for centuries because it's been misinterpreted by literally what the word says in there. And I believe that one word in particular in the the Greek, if they had just taken the time to uh, go ahead and dig out hupotasso, that that they would see what this is all about. So, at any rate, we're going to get right on over into this this, uh, teaching right now. Let's move into it. But first, turn over into Romans chapter 13. And this is the exhortation. This is the context that this is set in. In uh, chapter 12, you're dealing with uh, the well-being of a Christian. You're dealing with how we are to behave and carry out our walk. Now, this is done in the context of Nero and his persecution that's coming in. This is now in any way, form, or fashion backing up. It's no way in form or fashion accepting infanticide and abortion. It's no way possible to walk compromising the foundation principles of the faith and listening to Nero and being faithful to what he says to do because he was telling the Christians what I want you to do I want you to worship me because emperor worship was big time then which is idolatry and I want you to renounce and curse Jesus how many of us would do that right now and Nero was flaying people Nero was taking them and putting them on crosses and covering them with oil and lighting them up, and lighting his gardens up at night with the light off of those burning bodies on those stakes. This was an egregious, most evil of all men. I mean, we're talking Antichrist personified in that individual. So now let's look here and see. And I'm going to read this from the Passion Bible at the tail end. This is where this is going in our relationship to civil authorities, by the way. But it also is dealing with the government and the family, and also government and the church. Verse 11. Come on back up. Let's go to verse 10 because this is an extension and we can start here with a connection to the blessings. Because I am blessed to be a blessing to the nations. That's going to be activated through compassion, which is going to be walked through with an application of love. So the application of the blessings is this. Love makes it impossible to harm another. That's so critically important for understanding. Love makes it impossible to harm another, so love fulfills all that the law requires. That's going to be inclusive of civil law, law in the family, law in the church. It's all together, any type of law. It should be. Verse 11, to live like this is all the more urgent, for time is running out. You know it's a strategic hour in history. We know that, don't we? Time is short for us to get ourselves ready and prepare to get ready for what's coming. Uh, don't be surprised if we see some major things in the next few days. I'm not talking months, I'm talking days now. It is time for us to wake up for our full salvation is nearer than we first believed. Night's darkness is dissolving away as a new day of destiny dawns. And we are people of destiny. So we must once and for all strip away what is done in the shadows of darkness, removing it like filthy clothes, We know that it's consecration, and God has blown a wind of consecration through the church. And that's going to continue. God is still going to continue doing that, but it's not going to be the same as the the focus on preparation in the season. And once and for all, we clothe ourselves with the radiance of light as a weapon. I love that. I'm going to read that again. And once and for all, we clothe ourselves with the radiance of light as a weapon. These are people standing in the midst of darkness at an at unparalleled level, and they're going in there as a radiance of light weapon to be used against darkness. We must live honorably surrounded by the light of this new day, not in the darkness of drunkenness, debauchery, promiscuity, sexuality, not being argumentative or jealous of others. In other words, put on the new man, put off the old man transform through the renewing of our minds. That was the word that came forth just a minute ago. So all this ties right together as God always does. Instead, fully immerse yourselves into the Lord Jesus, the anointed one, and don't even waste a minute or a moment of thought on your former identity to awaken its selfish desires. Am I a child of God? Am I an overcomer? Am I walking in the destiny the things God's shown me from my youth, am I applying those and seeing victory after victory? Or do I still think about those days where I was abused in one way or another, or rejected, or struggled to get over the, the issues of life and the hurts that I have and still stay right there with that stronghold of thought? So those strongholds, again, will keep me from getting out and touching other people's lives and allowing them to come into my life, my heart. In fact, you watch your family, your kids' parents. Y'all have seen this. When they get upset and get offended, they start withdrawing themselves from whoever offended them. We do that too. In fact, it could go a lot of different ways. You know, I'm about to get on a sidetrack right here. I'm going to have to be careful because of time. So let's go back in here to Genesis. I'm sorry, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's go back in here to Romans chapter 13. Let's look at verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So abortion on demand is okay all the way up to the age of five. Is that okay? Why? Why? It's the law of the land. i got to obey the law. Right? I mean, this is what it says. You submit. You don't have a choice. You do what your government tells you to do. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. All right, we well, have a word here called sub- subject here. Submit. That's the word hupotasa. That's the same word that when we we, uh, had our teaching and we dealt with uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and we were looking at the relationship between a husband and a wife, that the husband has to agapio. Y'all remember? Sacrificial love for his spouse. The, The wife is supposed to, people toss up. She's supposed to come into military rank and order and file to make a quality decision. Am I going to obey this man or not? And see if the man is doing his job and uh, walking the way he's supposed to be doing as a man filled with God's spirit and walking in holiness and authority and power. If he knows who he is and is, is assured in his identification with Christ, I, I'm going to tell you something, man. If y'all haven't got that handle yet and you're wondering why your wife's not following you, that's your key. Because they're going to come after you and they're going to pursue you. You won't have to worry about this. It's going to be just the product of just like uh, mercy and goodness follow me all the days of my life, that woman is going to be right there following us and walking with us all the days of our life as well. And we're going to walk in victory. And my wife just said, amen. Yeah. And I love my wife too. She knows that. It's part of it. So let every soul be subject. I'm going to make a quality decision. Am I going to obey this law of abortion or not? Am I going to allow the, the public schools to have these clinics to tell my daughter, that it's okay to go and get that abortion since you messed up and without coming to me as her parent. I'm going to stand against that with every fiber of my being because I know that that's an abomination. That is a stronghold of thought that's been put in us and we've been indoctrinated with that stronghold in this culture since back in the 70s when they said that, oh, it's legal. I didn't get to vote for it. Did you? I didn't get to vote for it. I don't know anybody did except for nine justices of the Supreme Court that voted for it, and I don't even remember what the numbers were. I don't think it was unanimous then. And since that time, they've done everything to, in the, from the gates of hell, trying to keep that and promote it even further as a form of genocide and sacrifice to Baal. A sacrifice to hell is what this is that we're dealing with in that one area. So not every law that comes forth am I supposed to be necessarily saying, okay, I'm going to just be, be a, a obedient to it, and and, uh, go ahead and do everything that they say that I'm supposed to do. In fact, what every law should be doing should be affirming the well-being of life for people and for their good in this country and to protect us. The laws of a government should be such that it rewards righteous, good men and women, and then it comes in and it it, uh, executes judgment on the ungodly, on the wicked, on the vile, to keep the bestial, Adamic nature in place. Therefore, you have peace on the land. Therefore, the gospel will grow. Therefore, you will have prosperity on everybody in the nation. Therefore, the way this was designed originally, everybody will get the same judgment. Everybody will have to obey the same laws in the same way, whether you are the king or whether you are a shoemaker. It doesn't matter. We all are held accountable to the same level of justice. And justice and righteousness are two words that we're going to talk about as we go that are are critical that we always need to keep those together. And we're going to come back over here to this area shortly. I don't want to get into too much uh, of the the details here. But I want to say this right here because we're going to shift over to Genesis chapter 1 because we need to know why I need to understand how government works in this season, it's so critical what we're having to deal with. This message is, is a timely time. I mean, this is right on for right now, what we're dealing with. Verse 2 Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. Look at this. And they that resist, okay, so there's an action that's taken, shall receive. They that resist shall receive. They that sow, Well I've heard three so far. They that sow will reap. Reap. Everybody say reap. Reap. Here it is. All right, so you've got laws, you've got sowing, you've got reaping that's here. Directly related to what we do in relationship to government. So, let's go over to look in Genesis chapter one. We're going to look at the foundation principles of government. We'll see how God laid this in place. Uh, for you that, that want to take notes on this, it'd probably be beneficial to you on, on getting these principles down because'm I've never taught this here, not not to this this, this level. So this is gonna be a little bit new, maybe for some. y'all wait through this, dig it out, see what you see in it yourself. In chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created. In the the, uh, English, it's five words. In the Hebrew, it's seven. But this lays out everything dealing with government from the very beginning of the Word of God. You see, God, the name for Him here is the word Elohim. That is the plural of the word El, E-L, which means ruler. So He's the sovereign God. He's the king above all kings. He is the ruler. So it establishes right here that there was and is an, a truth to the eternal kingdom of God being in existence, even before this happened right here and creation took place. So the kingdom of God was already established. It's not something that's coming. It was already there. It's, it's being established in us, and it will be continually established, and we we'll walk in it fully in eternity future. It's never gone away. It's never going to go away. And the very place that this kingdom is established and it's walked in goes from the king himself. See, God himself is at the very center of the kingdom of God. Just like in the, the worldly kingdoms, the kings are at the very center of those kingdoms that are ungodly out there. And we know that all the kingdoms in the world are, are ungodly because of what uh, happened in the Garden of Eden. That it, they need to be influenced. And you're going to see that it's, And that's our job. We take dominion, it's not going out with swords physically as much as it's using this sword as we speak seeds and words and we influence with the kingdom of God, men and women of authority that have been put there to help them to do what God's called them to do. So here we go through the the Genesis narrative and you see in verse 4 that it was good. In verse 12, it was good. Verse 18, it was good. Talking about each one of these days as it was uh, created. Verse 25, it was good. And then verse 31, God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. It was good because it flowed forth from the very righteousness, everybody say righteousness, of the living God. And His character, what He sees, what He speaks, it comes forth. Now I've heard this taught that actually, now this, we definitely know this, This is from heaven's perspective looking toward earth. In chapter 1, actually nothing physical had manifested yet. This was all what was being stirred in the very spirit the very mind of God. And then he spoke it, and boom, when it came, it came. And that's what we see in chapter 2. Now, you can take your own interpretation of this and dig that out, and I'm sure you'll find other uh, opinions in different commentaries. But I, I tend to think that, that probably, possibly is, is, is true. So now we have the second narrative and that second perspective. This is from man being on earth looking toward heaven. So you go in and you read this whole chapter you see uh, that the righteousness of God and His goodness are what brings anything forth. And then you get here in, in chapter 2 and you begin to see man is created. He's formed of the dust of the ground and Life is breathed into Him. And we all have the life, the breath of God in us. Every man, woman, and child does, at least to a degree. So what we do with it in the long run is up to us. And then this is very interesting here. In a lot of different ways, we know that in verse 15, the, the principle of the Samar, of taking a seed, planting it in the garden, cultivating it, fertilizing it, watering it, make sure it gets enough light, where it rises up, after germination, the roots go deep. The shaft comes up on the plant and it bears forth fruit in due season. What is that called? We did this a minute ago. What is this? You sow and then you reap. Okay, everybody after me. Wait a minute, I didn't say anything yet. Sow and reap. Okay. Established right here in chapter 2. That's what the whole chapter really is about. This is justice. This is judgment. Understand that when the throne decrees justice and judgment towards somebody who's been in an era, they are reaping something that they have sown earlier. justice, judgment, government are all synonymous terms used through the word and in everyday usage. So you've got righteousness in chapter 1, the very nature of God Himself. Then you've got justice and judgment in chapter 2, and the two go together in bringing order to everything that goes forth from this point on. And we see it acted out over in, in chapter 3. when We see man and, uh, and woman falling in the Garden of Eden and getting in sin and not coming in. You see the establishment of grace, which would be... Uh, well, let's see. Let me back up on this. you got righteousness, and then it manifests as loving kindness. And then out of that comes forth grace. We'll look at that a little bit more in depth as we go on this. So grace comes in, and the man and woman, they they fall in the garden. Judgment comes in big time against the serpent. God goes ahead and puts him on the ground, and he has to crawl around, and and he's lost a lot of the uh, liberty that he had before. So God deals with him. And woman, he goes in and deals with her. Says you're going to have pain in childbirth. This is the judgment that's, that you've, uh, you receive. But then he turns right around and says, But you know something? I'm going to give you that desire for that husband. And honestly, that is not a negative thing, that is a good thing. So then that's, that's going to be your righteousness. You're going over into Adam. I'm going to give you thorns and thistles. That's going to be the curse you're going to have to deal with. That's the justice. But you know what he does from there? He goes in and and, uh, the seed of woman is going to be coming. And He's the one that's going to be the overcomer. He's the one that's going to tread upon the head of the serpent. So now we've got the grace coming in, the righteousness, the judgment, all the way through as it goes through. And you go through, and here at the very end of chapter 3, and this again is the balance between righteousness and justice. You will see this from this point on all the way through the Word of God. It's in here everywhere. Some of y'all may have preached this before. I don't know. But you've got the Messiah's coming. Yes, there it is. That's the grace. That's the righteousness. But you're kicked out of the Garden of Eden and it's protected by a sword. But you see, Messiah has been loosed even though that judgment's there. and But when Messiah comes into our hearts and our life, he helps us to go in. The sword, the Word of God. He leads us back into the Garden of Eden. We're walking in it. We're a believer. and We sit down and we eat this bread and we drink this wine that's in this Bible. We enter into a relationship with each other. We enter into a relationship with Him the way He's called us to do it. And we walk at that place of righteousness and justice and judgment being in proper balance. And then comes life. Then comes liberty. Then comes joy. Then no more shame. There's not a place for it because, hey, I've already been forgiven. I got the righteousness over here. I I messed up on that. I've already sown. I already know that. But it's no longer a part of me. Now, everybody listen carefully. We have all messed up, we've all made mistakes. We've all walked in sin. God, I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I made a mistake here, Lord. The bestial nature is real in me. I ask you to forgive me and have mercy on me. I turn away from this. I turn to you. I renew my mind. I want to do what you say I'm supposed to do. Okay, there's the righteousness. God's forgive me for, the, for my mistake. What happens to the sowing and reaping? The judgment side of this, the justice side of this. Does it go away? Poof, it's gone. Bill, what happens if you go out You have a seed of thistles and thorns and you plant that in the ground. What's it going to reap from that? Thistles and thorns. You mean that's not going to turn into an apple orchard? It doesn't, does it? You can repent of of going out and planting those thistles and the thorns and ask God to forgive you from that, but you've got some seed that's already been planted And you're going to reap it. Y'all know the truth of this. We've seen it in our lives, haven't we? Over the course of the years. Every one of us have. So we need to understand that this is not going to do away where God forgives me of what I deserve to be reaping back. It's going to come forth either way, it's going to be there. God established creation through his righteousness, righteousness is grace. We were created in His image and His likeness to rule over the bestial. Now y'all go back and think about that in, in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 28. I didn't mention that. God get, said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, have dominion over all the animals. The bestial. Have dominion over the bestial. Have dominion over the bestial nature in the flesh. Walk as a majestic believer of God filled with His Holy Ghost. Filled with His Holy Ghost and walk in it out. The grace reclothed man and made a way to re-enter the garden. God is so good to us. Now let's see about uh, what else here in 89 of Psalms, that chapter. Shift over to this, this for just a minute because it's so important. Verse 14. Psalm 89, verse 14. Does this make any sense, guys? Justice And judgment, two synonymous terms. Justice would be, I suppose, would be the noun here. Judgment would be the actual application of that as a verb. Or the habitation of the throne, where the throne dwells, where it stays, the foundation of it. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. So mercy and truth are going to be something that will flow forth from this in our lives as a result. It's going to be grace that's going to come in. So we've got righteousness and justice. The two always go together. So in other words, I have righteous judgment. I have just righteousness. But they both go hand in hand. There are the blessings of God, there's a grace, and then there's a side of, uh, of judgment coming in. Now, what, let's put this in perspective. Ungodly, wicked men come in and they do certain things and they sow seed against the righteous. It doesn't matter if we go out and lead them to Jesus or not. They're still going to reap. What matters is are they going to go to hell when they die or not. But that, that seed that they've sown is going to be God's love for us to protect us. And that's why you see whole nations wiped out because they were so ungodly and so uh, vile and so wicked in God's Word when He sent the children of Israel into the Promised Land. He took a area that was, was uh, full of demons and made that in the place that was the home for the righteous children of God. That's what he does with us when he says, go out into all the world and take this gospel where you're going to go. Go into darkness and take this light with you when you go out there. Some Old Testament examples of this. We'll get over uh, to Noah. We'll take him as, as an example here. He was the eighth man, eighth generation. Cain's progeny had had, uh, gone toward wickedness and turned more and more vile over the, the course of the generations. And we know that the whole earth was full of violence and wickedness in his generation. Seth's generations, they were men of God that were seeking him, but by the eighth generation, the only one left was Noah. And he was seeking the Lord himself with everything he knew. So everybody listen carefully. God speaks to his prophet Noah. The, the prophet has ears to hear. The prophet's given a warning. This is coming. Not only is the prophet given a warning, then we said, I want to get, get this totally right. He calls the prophet to pre- preparation. You can't make that up. Then, not only does he call them to preparation, but he gives them the plan on how to construct the ark. All right, so prophets, there should be a plan here. There should be something tangible here. I want to challenge you, you prophets, to get in the the closet, ask the Lord okay, here's the word that you've given us, that you've given us a warning. You're telling us to prepare. What's the plan of preparation? Okay. There's a, a biblical pattern for us to follow. and there's, For your prophets, I know we have at least one that's look, look, uh, watching on the live stream. Uh, take that to heed and use that as some direction for the coming days. Now for the elect, they were safely shut in the ark. Every atom, every molecule of that ark spelled out righteousness, safety, protection, grace. Every wave, every aspect of that flood that came in on the unrighteous was nothing more than the justice and judgment based upon what they had sown and they were reaping effectively what they deserved in the process. You've got righteousness and then you've got judgment. Sowing and reaping. You've got God's protection being on those people. Jacob, a man destined for greatness. He grew impatient. Everybody listen. Listen. Do not get impatient for what God's called you to do. Wait and and let him prepare you. Wait and grow into it. But he goes in and steals his brother's birthright and and also the blessing with the help of his mom. Uh, We know justice fell pretty heavily on him. Brother wanted to kill him. Many of us may have wanted to do the same thing. had to, to serve seven years for his wife and then he was deceived because he deceived himself, you see. He, what he sowed, he reaped. His wages were stolen from him. He comes back and he didn't know if his brother was going to kill him or not. But God's grace was there and there was restoration. And we could go through a lot more details on what this man, from his sowing, he did reap it back. No exercise of grace can interfere with a movement of justice. Grace pardons freely and fully for what is sown is reaped Regardless. Repentance for sowing bad seed is forgiven, but still we reap the weeds. Moses, birthed in civil disobedience. Y'all think about that. What was the word that that Pharaoh, the government said, kill all these Hebrew children, the, the males, when they're born? The midwives were disobedient. They rose up in civil disobedience, and they did the right thing according to the Word of God. See, there's a higher law and there's a lower law. When it comes down to protecting lives, yeah, there's a big difference between that and the speed limit on the road or the the trash that's on the, the sidewalk or spitting on the sidewalk, whatever it is. But you know Moses messed up. He spoke curses at Moriah. And the justice was he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. However, God in his righteousness comes down And says, okay, I'm not gonna let you go in there, but you can go up here on this mountain and you can see the promised land. I'll let you see it. And then I'm gonna bury you. I don't know of anybody else. There might be somebody here, I'm just not thinking about them. But have you ever heard of anybody else that God literally took them in and prepared a burial for them and buried them himself? He did that with Moses. That's how close they were. Moses sowed some bad seed, he had to reap. Did that destroy? His relationship with God, no. He was still God's favorite, God's chosen, just like we are. But yet, he had to go ahead and reap what he had sown. David, sexually immoral and murdered. He repented. I have sinned against my God. I have rebelled against my king. See, he understood who he had sinned against. He understood who the sovereign king was. God absolutely, totally forgave him. But you know, the sin of of, of adultery often leads to the death of of a child. And we see that coming forth. So now the justice and judgment comes in. But that's not all. He had been given forgiveness. He remained king. Righteousness came in, but justice still had to be rendered for him. Absalom raises up because David had rebelled against his king now Absalom rises up and rebels against him as king, his son, you see. David was God's son. You can't make this stuff up. And it's all through the Bible, over and over and over and over. Mamlocto is the Hebrew word, or uh, for kingdoms. In, God's, in, the, in the Greek, I'm sorry, the Hebrew. So let's go over to Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to see the first mention of what happens with these ungodly uh, progeny of uh, Cain that come in and they begin to do something called build cities. If you'll recall, God never said anything about building cities, never was in His plan to do that. But we see here in uh, chapter 10, verse 8 through 10, reference to this man called Nimrod, who we've studied some already, the rebel the renegade. And Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, Wherefore it is said, even uh, as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, in the beginning of his kingdom. Everybody say kingdom. That means a king, you have people, and you have laws that uh, govern everything related between the two. Now Nimrod, some additional things I found out recently. I didn't teach these the last time we were on this topic. He, was, he had this gifting. He was very influential and, and persuasive in the way that he communicated. So he was able to go out and make alliances with people and have men to come in and to follow him. It wasn't just all being built up as a man of war and overcoming him in warlike situations. In fact, he wasn't necessarily physically strong. But what he was he was in totally opposition to God and he built cities. Now, why did he build cities? It was a platform or a place where he could gather more people together and influence them politically, financially, and socially. Everybody look up here and listen. Everybody look up here and listen. Have you seen the maps of the, the distribution of the political parties? whether you have the the Republicans who basically are conservatives, not all are are the same, but the conservative, and the Democrats, and the places where the Democrats, who are very liberal, very much involved in, uh, in the government being involved in influence socially and financially with the person, individual. Have you noticed the distribution of the blue versus the red on those maps? How much is red? Most of it is. Where's the blue? Think about it. Think about it. What are up up in the state of New York? Where is the blue? Manhattan, that area. What about out in uh, California? Where 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 are the blue counties? Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then you see that all the way across the country in the big cities. That's where the liberal tyrants, the big government, those that want to come in with a Nimrod spirit to control, to manipulate, to overpower, to lord over people. Jesus Himself said, you're not to lord it over people like the Gentiles do. You're to come in and you should serve them. And that's what we should be having in the government positions and officials should be public servants instead of those that lord it over the people. Never was it God's will for his people to build the cities. The only cities that you see in God's word when you go back here and study it and in history were that they, uh, when they were in Egypt, they built uh, Python and Ramses, two cities there under slavery. And then Solomon built cities. Why did he build cities? He built one for each one of his heathen wives who grew up in those systems of worldwide government that were out there that were ungodly, and they understood the lordship over people principle. Solomon backslid big time when he did that. That never was God's will at all. Abraham, great man of wealth, influential, very very influential, very gifted. History says he had tremendous number of people that he, he had led to the Lord before he ever came out of Ur and came down to the promised land because he was an evangelist, and he wasn't afraid to talk about his, his relationship with God. Did he build any cities? Did he build a kingdom? Now I want to go ahead this is something that just popped in my spirit quick just today. He goes in when Lot is taken in Sodom and Gomorrah with all their stuff and all the people that were there by the five kings that came in and attacked. They took off uh, the kings did with them and all the loot. Abraham finds out about it with his 300 small army and goes in and he takes names, and he he kicks all of them. It wasn't even a battle. They're destroyed. He kills Nimrod and a bunch. He comes back. They're walking back into the kingdom, and he looks up, and the king of Salem comes to him, and the king of Sodom comes to him. If y'all recall, the king of Salem came over, and he ended up giving a tie to him, a picture of his grace coming on him, and his peace, which is what Salem means. Of his relationship with God. And he gives him the bread and the oil. The wine, actually, in that case. And, and the, the covenant is cut there. Then the king of Sodom comes up. And Sodom wants all the people. Why did he want all the people? So this was a test for Abraham right there. He could have told him, No, man, you don't understand. I beat all these guys now and they beat y'all. I'm king. I'm king. You see, we're all going to have a test that we're going to all walk in, especially when we're walking in places of blessings, where we're being prospered, where we will have to make that decision. We're going to come up on this line, and the devil's going to come at us like he did with Jesus in the wilderness. He said, I'll give you all these kingdoms in the world if you just bow down and worship me. What am I going to do? Am I going to continue to walk in righteousness? Or am I going to go ahead and move over here and get into some justice that's about to come on my head? Because it's going to come. It will come. It may be good for a while, but there will be a day of accounting on this. All this ties together, doesn't it? Then we go over into Genesis chapter 20. And this is important right here. Genesis 20, verse 9. Abraham is dealing with a man named Abimelech. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have thou done to us? If y'all recall, he had said his his wife was his sister and Abimelech had taken her. Actually, Abimelech had a fear of God in him to a degree. What have you done unto us? And what have I offended thee? Now look at this. That thou hast brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. On me and on my kingdom. On me and on mine. Me, mine. The ungodly kings. And in fact, I guess you could go ahead and extrapolate that to be God and his kingdom. Everything that deals with coming against the kingdom also comes against the king. The two are inseparable. In fact, they get their identification there. You see, Nimrod, if y'all recall, wanted to make a a great name for himself. God told Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. You don't have to worry about that. So this is the, the, the trap that we can fall into right here. That, you know, what if I am, uh, am not happy with the, the taxing system, that the way that it's been set up, and uh, Nancy Pelosi gets upset about that, that's why she's getting upset about it. I know she's very upset at what Dan Lane thinks anyway, but not really. She doesn't even know who I am. But the bottom line is, that's the way that, that the, uh, the folks that are in positions of authority in every beast kingdom in the world, they consider that to be their kingdom, and that anything that happens to that that's negative is happening to them, and vice versa. So we need to understand that mindset that's there. Anything done to one is done to the other. The purpose of the kingdoms of men are to usurp God's rule over people. To usurp God's rule over people. It's all about lordship and power. You see, God gave dominion over the bestial nature of the animals. Now men, when they come in and set their kingdom up, They they dominate people in addition to animals. It's all about power consolidated in the hands of one or the elite. Everybody else is their servant. Understand that we've got a different level of elite government that they're trying to put in. They want us to be serfs and servants. I serve the living God. I will not serve the elite demonic entities that rule and reign in beast natures, our nations. It's just not what we're going to do as, as believers. It's something we decide in advance who we are we walk in it. They overpower the mass of the people with laws, the military, and political might. And it's designed to subdue the ideas of freedom and commerce and to bring everybody into servitude. And they will regulate with taxes and regulations of all sorts. Now, here's a problem, and we're going we're to uh, touch on this. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stop here after this, this next segment because I don't want to. OD everybody on this, but basically when it comes down to the bottom line, human, all human governments do basically three things. And what they're going to do, even the good, so-called good human governments, they will put in laws and regulations that will keep me from truly, absolutely 100% being able to fulfill the destiny God has for me. Now, what will help is when we have a godly king in who fears God. Did y'all know that for the first time in 100 years when Trump came into office, they reinstated weekly Bible studies with the cabinet in the White House? That's the first time in 100 years that's happened. Now, that tells me a little bit about something going on there that's not necessarily that bad of a man. In fact, he has some fear of God that's there. That's who I want up there because if you go back and look at the kings of Israel, they were required when they were being raised up in Deuteronomy that they had to take the Torah and write it out by hand themselves. The whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They were required daily to go in and study that so that they would know that they were not a god like Nimrod was or Pharaoh was or Clinton was. If you want to throw out any other gods out there or presidents, Trudeau, Merkel, Johnson, Netanyahu, throw them out there. Are they acting like a god? Are they acting like they're a servant of the living God? A viceroy? Somebody that's stewarding over a group of people, or are they lord- lording over them? Are they strangling them with, with uh, taxation? and With heaviness? So, we have repression. Repression would be the first function uh, that they set up in the boundaries. And they're trying to to bring in borders, limitations to people and their actions. Repression are laws and regulations that are put in place to control the bestial nature. That's basically what that is. Uh, A republic would be a type of government that would do that or a benevolent dictatorship. Now, everybody don't flip out when we say dictatorship because there are dictatorships, that, depending on the man that's sitting there, that can be very, very good. In fact, Pastor Hen, in talking with him, he, he experienced life under a benevolent dictatorship on several occasions when he's on the mission field. And he said he prefers that over a republic. Because if you got a man there that, that's, uh, that has a heart for the people, that's serving God, you're going to find that they're going to be able to get things done quick, and they're going to be able to bless people, and the government work that operates really good. The problem with that is the bestial nature. What about his son when he comes in? Is he going to be as, as uh, spiritually oriented as his dad, or is he going to be totally bestial in his approach? And at some point, you have a king that comes up that doesn't do all that was good in the sight of the Lord, is where you see the standard and that was being applied to the good kings that were successful over in. Uh, Israel, in history in the Old Testament. Okay, so you have repression is number one. That's the issue laws and regulations to control the bestial nature. Number two, they can move to a level of being in suppression. And they will use laws and, rep- and regulations and then they'll use those to sub- subdue tyranny, repl- repress anything socially or collectively. Any undesirable activity, they will come in and they will just... Regulate and regulate and regulate and come down hard on it. Socialism is the type of government that that will take it to that level. Socialism is. And then you have oppression, outright oppression. That should never be in place in any nation in the world. But you know what the problem is right now? That's the dynamic of the most abusive, most prevalent type of government that's in the world right now. There's too many of those around. Oppression is outright rejection of all uh, ethnic groups, relationships, anything that disagrees with what the state wants to do, any opposing views of any, any no, uh, type. And they will come in and they will use the power of the government and try to squelch that. Marxism slash communism will be a part of that. And then a malevolent dictator will do that too. And I've been in nations where I've seen uh, at least that part of it. I have not been in a communist nation before. Now, the repressive aspect of what government does is necessary to go ahead and regulate the, the bestial nature. So that's okay. We need that if we're, got, if we're going to have a man-made government that we're going to be under. Uh, there's going to be some repression. Uh, you know, if you go out and you murder somebody, you're going to go to jail and you, you're probably going to die. Everybody in favor of that? Say Aye. Safety is going to come in, peace is going to come in on the land, and you're going to have a place where people are going to be able to live and prosper. That's what the the purpose of this is. Suppression is necessary to remove anarchy, chaos, and tyranny. Now, are we seeing anarchy, chaos, and tyranny right now? Yes, because the repression has not been done effectively like it's supposed to be, and people have been educated in a different way in the schools therefore now we're having this tyranny and these other things come in and our government's not been taking the responsibility it's supposed to take over the last uh, several generations. So suppression comes in. That's what we're seeing here in this country right now. With the ultimate aim of oppression. Oppression is justice without righteousness. Justice without righteousness. That's a dictatorship of elite criminals. That's what we're looking at. If you have a Marxist, Somebody that's walking in Marxism, you're looking at somebody that is, a, that is a, a criminal. Somebody that's an atheist, somebody that is amoral, I'd call them unmoral or immoral. And somebody that's, that's pushing anarchy because out of chaos comes order. There's civil injustice that comes forth. that control to the point that they bring everybody in slavery where just a handful of people live the good life as kings. And that should never be a government ever. There shouldn't be a place for that on planet Earth. Government is supposed to act for the greater good. And when they don't, then people need to stand up and they need to resist that. If, If good men do nothing, evil men will prevail every time. So let's go back over here to Romans chapter 13. Y'all still with me? Does this make any sense? All right, that's our civics lesson for today. Let every soul be subject, hupotasso, unto the higher powers. Are, are they oppressing me? Are they suppressing me? Are they oppressing me? What is the government I'm under? Is it godly or is it ungodly? Are they making me a slave or am I able to walk in liberty? Am I able to walk in peace or do I always walk... In fear of the sword falling down on my head, even though I'm walking in righteousness. I don't deserve justice without uh, righteousness being there. The two go hand in hand, remember that. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive themselves damnation. Bottom line, still, I'm gonna sow, I'm gonna reap. I will be held personally responsible. I don't care what the socialists uh, in in uh, the schools taught us. Oh, baby, it's not your fault. It's those bad people who've done this to you. Come here, let me take care of you. You're such a victim. I don't care if you just killed that person. So, I'm so sorry for you. While the whole time this person's over here dead and all the family members are grieving, but yet we want to coddle that. Now, where's, where's the justice in that? That person, I'm not saying that's my wife. No, I wouldn't do that to her. No. I'm going to leave it with this. Proverbs 29. Well, Pastor Lane, Jesus didn't run for governor, uh, the president of Caesar uh, in his time when he was here. And that doesn't mean we're supposed to be active there in the public domain as Christians. For that, it renders a Caesar what Caesar's, what uh, is God is God's. All right then. Let's go over to Proverbs 29, verse 2. You've got to take this spirit, uh, this, this scripture into account right here because you can't just at random make this decision based upon uh, what we just read over Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says this in chapter 2 of, of uh, Proverbs 29. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Who's going to be righteous? Who are the righteous? I think it's by default. I don't know of any men that are bad, vile, wicked men that are righteous, period. I believe that that pretty well lays it out right there. When the righteous are in authority, the people, all the people, rejoice because the government that's going to come in is going to be one that's going to bring them life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. I'm going to end right here by reading something out of uh, Gil's commentary on this. It says, when the righteous are in authority, and they're increased, is literally what that means. That increase means... In number, it means in riches, in power, dominion. They're set in high places, and they they have the exercise of civil government and the execution of the laws in their hands. And what they will do, they will walk in a place of protection of good men and their civil and religious privileges. There will be punishment that, that they will bring toward evil men. They will encourage all that is good and discourage everything that is bad. And the people rejoice as a result because under their administration, everybody feels good. They enjoy and take advantage of life. Righteousness, peace, and joy will be a part of the the people, the populace in those nations. On the other hand, when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. They groan under the tyranny, under the sad state of things. The number of good men is lessened, cut off, obliged to be obscure, protect themselves, Wicked men and wickedness are encouraged and promoted. Heavy taxation comes in, and there are exorbitant demands made and cruelty, injustice, and arbitrary power is exercised, and no man's person and property is safe. Now, this was written before communism came in, guys. This is the the history of mankind with world kingdoms. It's nothing new under the sun. And there, there are over 200 nations in the world and you guess how many different forms of government that there are? Over 200. You go through and look it up and you can see. So what we need to do in this season is determine that I am separated. Let's all stand up. I'm walking as a child of God. I'm going to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and no one else. I will be, uh, I will be obedient as a, a good soldier. I will examine these, these laws, and we're going to get into how we do this next time in a practical way. I'm not advocating taking up guns and killing our government officials and replacing them with, with Christians. That We're not a Marxist or a Muslim nation where well, we could do that, okay? So that's, that's not what we do. It would be the same way we could lead people to Jesus. Uh, go ahead and get saved, or, or I'm going to shoot you. It doesn't work that way. So let's just let the Lord lead us here. Um, Lauren, you want to come up? I know this is not one of those words where you get a lot of amens on it. It's a solid foundational teaching. It's where nothing in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, nothing in the New Testament is going to be hanging out there. It's going to be directly related to the Old Testament. I'm going to leave this this word, I want you all to to meditate on this. In the the, uh, 5th century, There was a division that took place by the church and the church officials where they divided the Old Testament from the New Testament. The first 400 plus years of Christianity, after everything was written out, they had them together. They were all one document. Because you see, you've got justice and judgment primarily were going to be in the Old Covenant. Now you separate that out you've got righteousness in the New Covenant and we lose the, the uh, perspective that the two are not to be separated. So keep that in mind. We've got a lot of strongholds of thought we've got to get out of the way here. Because that Old Testament is just as bad for today unless Jesus said that there's a change taking place as it was when it was first written. Amen.